This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to a conversation with history. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Professor Carol Greider, who is the Daniel Nathans Professor and Director of Molecular Biology and Genetics at Johns Hopkins University Medical School. She won the 2009 Nobel Prize for Physiology of Medicine, along with Elizabeth Blackburn and Jack W. Shostak. Uh, Professor Greider is the 2014 Hitchcock Lecturer at Berkeley. In 1885, the Hitchcock Endowment Fund was established from a bequest made by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock to institute a professorship at the University of California for free lectures upon scientific and practical subjects. Professor Greider, welcome back to Berkeley. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Where were you born and raised? I was born in uh, actually San Diego, California, but I was raised in Davis, California. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Um, well, my father was a, a physicist at, uh, at UC Davis, and he um, very much uh, encouraged me and my brother to um, be able to follow what we were interested in and to try and keep all doors open and very much encouraged us to be able to... Um, uh, explore things uh, that inter- interested us. And so I think that that really shaped how I thought about um, a career. And and your mother also had a Ph.D. from Berkeley. Both your parents had Ph.D.s from Berkeley. Both my parents had Ph.D.s from Berkeley, although my mother died when I was young, and so it was my father that raised us. And so his influence on um, sort of where I went uh, was what I remember most. And, and was there a lot of talk at the dinner table uh, about uh, scientific matters? Um, sometimes, usually about physics, which um, was a little bit above my head. Um, but uh, but certainly, it was clear that being able to pursue what you were interested in um, was 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 a goal. And and uh, b- because of your father's uh, uh, role as a professor, you part of your early years were spent abroad. Uh, yes, um, he was on sabbatical um, at the. Um, Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg um, when I was 12. So I went to Germany and was put into the German gymnasium and as a consequence learned to speak German either the hard way or the easy way, depending on how you think about it, just being thrown in and immersed. In, um, in, in biographical material I've read about you, you're, you, you had an older brother mm-hmm. and, and your relationship with him was very important and, and both of you developed uh, uh, a sense of autonomy and independence, even by walking to school. <laughs> yeah, walking to school when we were also in, in when we were young, but also in Germany, and being able to get around um, on our own through the public transportation when we were, you know, twelve and thirteen, um, it was important. So, so was were 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 thinking skills, critical thinking, just something. You absorbed with the atmosphere, a physics professor, father, uh, studying abroad even as a young person? I never really thought of it that way so much. Um, I, um, I didn't think of myself as somebody that was particularly good at, at critical thinking. Um, I was just trying to follow things I was interested in. And, and uh, in, in your early years, you, you had uh, dyslexia, right? And so, so you had to develop uh, 
drawn this independence and autonomy to figure out how to really cope uh, to make up for what you couldn't do with things that you could do very well. Well, it wasn't clear what dyslexia was back then. And so all I knew was that, you know, I had to be taken out of my regular classroom for these remedial spelling and that I had um, a lot of trouble uh, in spelling. And it wasn't really defined as dyslexia. And so it wasn't until I was a little bit older and looking back that it was clear that it was dyslexia. And so I think that's part of what contributed to my feeling like, you know, maybe I wasn't as bright as some of the other kids were. Um, but if I worked hard, I could still do what I wanted. And so that was sort of the image uh, that I had of myself. It was embarrassing to be sitting in, a, in grade school and have a special teacher come in and take you out of the classroom in front of all of the other kids. But, but you learn to compensate, really, and, and develop coping strategies and skills. Uh, later on, they ended up being uh, being very useful. I mean, I remember in my uh, high school biology when we had a lot of memorization of um, anatomy. We were doing anatomy of the cat. And I found it very easy to mm. memorize things. And I realized retrospectively that that was probably because uh, when I saw a word, I couldn't sound out the word. And then, so instead, I would memorize it. Um, and so that developed those memory skills that ended up um, having uh, advantages in, in other settings. Uh, did you have any teachers before you went to college that, that uh, helped further your, what was to become your interest in science? Um, I was very interested in, uh, in biology uh, in, in high school. It wasn't necessarily um, something that I said I wanted to have a career in, and I wasn't you know, one of the kids that did science fairs or had a chemistry set. Um, but when I was a, a senior in high school, I thought um, uh, biology was, was interesting, and I was interested particularly in marine biology, um, which is what prompted me then to choose UC Santa Barbara as the um, place to go for my undergraduate work. And, and for you, uh, 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 Santa Barbara was a special place because of a, 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 a special college within Santa Barbara. Talk a little about that, because it seems yes. that you, you really... Uh, develop some important skills there. Yeah, so I, um, in addition to applying to the University of California at Santa Barbara, I also applied to the College of Creative Studies. And I knew about this because there was a, a professor there, uh, B. Sweeney, um, who had been a colleague of my mother's, uh, and my father still kept in contact uh, with the family. Uh, and she was a professor of biology within this uh, integrated um, uh, college. So uh, there was, you know, literature, science, math, arts, uh, within a small, uh, small group. Uh, and that was particularly uh, wonderful because um, there was a lot of um, individual attention. Uh, each student had a, um, uh, an assigned advisor, uh, and you could develop a curriculum uh, with that advisor without necessarily having to you know, take certain blocks of classes as uh, the rest of the university did. And I found that... Um, uh, very wonderful because it allowed me to be able to um, do experiments in laboratories earlier than I otherwise would. And, and you really uh, uh, got into the science and doing the experiments uh, uh, across uh, different areas. Mm -hmm. Talk a little about that. Yeah, so I remember when, when B. Sweeney, who was my advisor, um, uh, said to me as a, as a freshman, she really felt that I should, you know, be working in a laboratory. Uh, and, and I remember being thrown in as a freshman and having all of these college classes and, again, thinking that, 
you know, I wasn't as smart as all of my uh, other colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that would be overwhelming. And she said, I think you should try it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so I did. And, um, and I started off um, in a laboratory doing um, some ecology, uh, beach ecology. Uh, and I quickly learned that um, although I was interested in biology, that area of biology didn't really fit my, um, my way of thinking. It was more statistics. Um, and uh, so then through uh, B. Sweeney and interactions with her, she was able to um, help me get into uh, several different laboratories um, at Santa Barbara. And it was when uh, I got into a laboratory that was doing more biochemistry, um, where one could really look at what we now call sort of mechanistic interactions, how you make a, a change in a system and then you can see the outcome of that change, um, that that really fit, you know, my intellectual way of thinking. So that's... Uh, was really a wonderful opportunity to test out different areas because sometimes you can't know what is most interesting to you until you're actually in the environment. And and so you 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 it was a matter of self-discovery mm-hmm. what what really worked for you and and interestingly enough it sounded like you wanted a uh, a physics dimension to uh, the the biology well, certainly you want... a physical dimension physical yes. yeah yes. yeah but mm-hmm. but but that's what physicists do, right? Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's fascinating. But, but the, the structure, the curriculum structure and the mentoring sort of helped you find what it is you actually wanted to do. That's rare sometimes in yes. undergraduate education. Yes, and it also helped because I also took a year abroad um, because I already spoke German, I was able to uh, take a year abroad at Santa Barbara and go and studying in Göttingen. So it was my second year um, abroad then. Um, and it, it allowed me then to uh, take the courses there and fit them into my academic program. So in taking a year abroad, I still graduated in four years. You, you, uh, you, there sounds like a lot in your experience that made you observant of people and different kinds of people, in a way. Is that fair? I mean, uh, to be immersed in a foreign environment mm-hmm. at a young age and then doing it again, uh, it, it must have helped make you an observant person of the differences mm-hmm. out there. Yes, I mean, I, th- I think that that is certainly something that I was always um, uh, aware of is, you know, people and interactions with people. And so I think that, uh, that because I liked that, I liked going abroad, and the going abroad then helped me uh, learn to do that as well. Now, uh, then uh, after getting your BA, you came uh, to Berkeley as a graduate Mm -hmm. student. Talk about choosing Berkeley and and why you wanted to be here. Well, um, when I was uh, applying to various uh, uh, graduate schools, uh, again, one has to take standardized tests. And um, because of my dyslexia, first for the the GREs, uh, sorry, for the SATs and also for the GREs, I didn't do so well um, on those. Um, and so of um, the 13 places that I applied to, um, only two uh, considered uh, me for uh, uh, the graduate program. And one was Caltech and the other was UC Berkeley. Um, my advisor, B. Sweeney, at the time, she said, oh, you just want to go to Berkeley because that's where your mother went. And she advised me instead to go to Caltech to do something different. <laughs> um, but when I uh, came to interview, um, I was very uh, captivated by uh, the, the program and specifically my interactions with Elizabeth Blackburn uh, during my interview here. And that's what really swayed me uh, to come here rather than, than Caltech. And uh, uh, what were the years that you were at Berkeley and, and what was Berkeley like that in a it just atmospherically mm-hmm. in general. 
So I was here from 83 to 88, um, and um, it was uh, a wonderful, open, intellectual uh, environment, and um, I very much uh, liked the interactions uh, with uh, my classmates uh, in the molecular biology department. Um, it was... Um, People really were interested in what other people were working on, and you know, friends would you know talk not just about you know what was going on at you know socially, but but mostly it was about experiments, um, and um, and there was a lot of um, support uh, amongst uh, the group, um, and so uh, today um, many of my best friends are still the students that I was here with at Berkeley during my PhD. I like to ask my guests what they see as both the skill set and the temperament that uh, 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 are important for the kind of work you do. Um, what they would see? Or uh, well, what, what, um, what you, what you looking back at, at your own career and doing the work that you do, what, what, what is the skill set involved? Um, being able to be able to have the the freedom to do something that uh, one's interested in without necessarily worrying about obstacles, um, and I think that that's something that um, is different uh, today uh, than it than it used to be. Uh, people are a little bit wor- more worried these days about what are they going to do for their career or what might get in the way. Um, but uh, I certainly felt um, as a graduate student that um, I just wanted to do what was interesting, and and I didn't really see that there were limitations or obstacles. Now, that may be unique to me because I learned early on, perhaps through the dyslexia, to just put blinders on. And when I you know, saw something I couldn't do, just to ignore the fact that I couldn't do it. So it's, it's not clear to me um, uh, if I was unique uh, in, that, in that setting. But, but certainly I felt that um, I was extremely encouraged to... Uh, follow what was interesting and and not worry about any consequences. And and you had some choices once you were here in in terms of what you would specialize in. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 what was your thought processes like? Had your experience at Santa Barbara sort of uh, pointed the way, so to speak, uh, in, in the choices you made there? Um, I knew from from Santa Barbara that I looked I liked this sort of. Um, mechanistic uh, way of thinking, and and that was in uh, both uh, biochemistry as well as in molecular biology. Um, but conversations with uh, uh, some of my uh, my mentors at, at uh, Santa Barbara, uh, Kevin Sullivan and David Asai, uh, were really saying, you know, DNA is the the way of the future in terms of where um, these kinds of interesting questions are going to lead. Um, and so that then prompted me to apply to the Department of Molecular Biology rather than to the Department of Biochemistry, because naively I thought that there was more of that in, in molecular biology. It turns out that it was going on in both departments. But, um, uh, but that's what I was uh, sort of looking for, was um, something uh, where one could study things in a very uh, mechanistic way and, and understand the DNA. Uh, and so you you decided to work under Professor Blackburn, mm-hmm. and uh, you you became interested in her work and extending her work uh, in in telomeres. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, help us understand what a telomere mm-hmm. is. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's the, the very end of the chromosome, and um, Liz had been working on this for um, a, a number of years, and it was something that I hadn't really um, heard very much about, so I was particularly interested in it because it was a little bit out of the mainstream. Um, but they, uh, they are the ends of chromosomes, the functional unit at the ends of chromosomes, which are essential for protecting uh, the chromosome ends. So it's like um, a little cap. A little cap that, that protects uh, the chromosome end. Um, but it turns out that in addition to protecting the chromosome end, uh, it's important for maintaining the length um, of the chromosome. Uh, and that was something that at the time uh, Liz and, and others were, were recently aware of, that um, the way that uh, when you copy a whole chromosome, it turns out that the way you copy a chromosome, the very end of that chromosome, the telomere, can't be completely copied to the end. Uh, and so there was this mystery about um, how it is that the end of the chromosome can be maintained. Why isn't it just that the, uh, the telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter every time a cell divides? That was certainly the prediction. Um, and so uh, we were interested in, in how that problem is overcome. Uh, and, and as you begin this work and, and really extend it over time, you're, uh, and, and I've learned this in interviewing the scientists who've come on board, you're, you're actually on the back of people who, are, who have preceded you and made discoveries. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's just talk a little about that. So in, in uh, let me see if I have this here, in, in the 30s, what did Mueller and McClintock do that, that set the stage for what you were doing? So the function of telomeres in terms of this protective cap, that's mm-hmm. what H.J. Muller and, and Barbara McClintock um, showed, was that um, Muller was working in Drosophila and McClintock in corn or maize, uh, showed that there must be something protective at the end because when you uh, break that uh, chromosome end, uh, that you get um, uh, the, the chromosome is either degraded or it will fuse with other chromosomes. So they were the first to functionally define the telomere as we just uh, described it. Um, and then it was in the uh, 1970s that uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, working together with, with Joe Gall, showed the molecular uh, characteristics of the telomere. So they defined the actual DNA sequence at the time. And then understanding that molecular characteristic, we could then go forward and ask questions about um, how the end of the chromosome is maintained. And, and uh, the, uh, explain a little more what understanding the end and the, the molecular structure mm-hmm. at the end, what is that about? In, in other words, it, it's, 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 help me understand that. Yeah, so if you understand um, the, the detailed um, makeup of the chromosome, then that allows one to do experiments uh, to be able to test um, how is it that the end of the chromosome can be maintained. But if you don't know uh, what it functionally is made of, then you can't design experiments um, around that. And so it was really understanding that, that DNA sequence. Um, and in the case of, uh, of the, the telomere sequence that Liz Blackburn defined, it was from the ciliated protozoan uh, tetrahymena, uh, which has 40,000 chromosomes. So you pick a, a one-cell organism that's doing a lot of this work. Exactly. It's got 40,000 chromosomes, so you go to the source to find out what the, uh, the material is actually made of. And so they found that it was this very simple, repeated sequence. And in uh, DNA, we use the, the four-letter alphabet for the um, building blocks of the DNA, and that's uh, T, C, A, and G. Um, but what they found was that this telomere was made up of uh, a very, very repetitive T, T, G, 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 T, T, G, 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 T, T, G, 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 hundreds of repeats, 
very, very simple and repetitive, and that that's what actually provides the protective cap at the end of the chromosome. And and is does that mean that that the cap is made up of individual caps, or it's it's one continuous structure? It's one continuous structure, and then that DNA sequence actually has. Um, proteins that bind along it to carry out the function um, of the telomere. And, and uh, do, do different organisms have different lengths? And then throughout the aging process, w- what happens to these caps? Well, at, the, at first it was only identified in these single-cell ciliates. And then um, as uh, more people started doing experiments, once you know what an initial um, uh, sequence is, then it's gives you something in mind to look in other organisms. Um, And so one of the very nice things about working on something as fundamental um, as the telomere is that that things that are that uh, fundamental inside cells tend to be conserved throughout organisms. And so how it's solved in one organism will tend to be true in many, many organisms. And it turned out that that was very true for telomeres. Uh, so as uh, people started identifying telomere sequences in different organisms, uh, there were also these simple, repeated sequences um, on the ends of chromosomes. Um, and so it was able to, we were able to then do uh, more experiments to try and understand how those are maintained. And, and uh, Blackburn and her associate, Gull, mm-hmm. uh, what, w- part of their experimentation, which really pushed this along, was the the uh, discovery that you could take one organism mm-hmm. and essentially uh, build caps in another mm-hmm. related organism, but a different organism. So that was the experiment that had been done just before I came to uh, to Berkeley, and that was a collaboration of um, Liz Blackburn with Jack Shostak, and they took um, a piece of DNA from yeast, which is normally a circle. And then they opened that circle and added the telomeres that they had identified, that Liz had identified from tetrahymena. So instead of a circle, they now had what would be a linear chromosome, like most chromosomes. And quite remarkably, they found that when they took that linear piece of DNA with telomeres and put it inside yeast cells, and tetrahymena and yeast are in two different kingdoms of life, uh, that that function, that telomere function, was maintained inside the yeast. And so the telomeres functioned, and you now had this linear chromosome. And so that was really um, a key experiment. But even more importantly was then going and looking to see uh, within those yeast cells uh, that tetrahymena telomere had a little bit of telomere sequences added onto it that were yeast-specific sequences as it was dividing. And that provided the the, the clue uh, that made um, Liz and Jack suggest this mechanism how is it that telomeres are actually maintained? And they made the very bold proposal that maybe there is um, an enzyme that actually will just add these repeated sequences onto the ends of chromosomes. So as I said, normally you would expect the telomeres to shorten progressively with each cell division, but they propose that if you can then add something, then you can balance out the shortening with addition. And so that's what I then set out to test uh, when I came uh, to work with Liz Blackburn. Well, just out of curiosity, is is the sequence in the different organisms the same? It's not exactly the same. It's the same flavor. That is, it's tandemly repeated sequences. But very uh, conveniently, the yeast sequence is just slightly different than the tetrahymena sequence. So you could see that you had tetrahymena telomeres, and then there was a transition into yeast telomeres at the very end um, of the of the sequence, which which allowed them then to propose that they could be added uh, by an enzyme. 
So, okay, you're a first-year graduate student. You've, you've, you've studied enough to, to know who you want to study with, and you have been exposed to the history uh, that we've just talked mm-hmm. about in terms of discovery. So then what, what did you uh, say to yourself uh, about what you wanted to focus on? Well, for, for first-year graduate students, uh, at least at the time, and, and I think this is still true, is you're required to do projects in three different laboratories. So I did a project uh, in one laboratory, and then I did a project with Liz Blackburn um, on telomeres from an unrelated organism, uh, and then I did a third project. And, and you're not officially allowed to make a deal with who you're going to work with until sometime in May um, of the first year. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to work with Liz uh, during the time that I had done the rotation with her. And I knew about this idea, um, uh, how do chromosomes replicate? How are they maintained? And I thought that that was the most exciting thing going on in telomeres. So in May, at the end of my third rotation, I made an appointment to go and see Liz, and I had two things that I wanted to ask her. One is, can I work with you? And two is, can I work on this project? And I was thrilled because she said yes to both. And the conversation lasted maybe five minutes. <laughs> uh, and then uh, once I finished up my third project, I went back to, to Liz's lab and started the work uh, to try and identify, is there such a thing which will add these telomeric sequences onto the ends of chromosomes? And It sounds to me like, just following your intellectual journey here, that, that you were really, uh, all, everything in your life came together to prepare you for this choice of what you wanted to work with and and set about doing it? It just seemed like the obvious thing to do mm. because it was um, a, a very exciting uh, problem um, that I was just curious about. Um, but certainly um, that is built up by my experiences from the past that brought me to that point where I felt that this was uh, an interesting project um, that uh, and, and Liz uh, was very interested in this and she was happy to have somebody that wanted to pursue it. Uh, so uh, you, you start this work, and then uh, what is involved in the experimentation that that says, okay, what what's going on here, and and how do I play with these creatures, shall we say, or these uh, these these chromosomes to figure out what's going on. Give, give mm-hmm. us, you, you, at some point I read you said, you know, you need a strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, to and, and so what, what was the strategy you, you set upon and what, what were the different things you had to uh, adjust mm-hmm. to, to, to come up? So it's an with, empirical science. And we started, yeah. of course, again with tetrahymena. Tetrahymena has 40,000 chromosomes, and it must have a lot of whatever it is that is needed to maintain the chromosomes. Uh, so we... Um, uh, used tetrahymena cells and basically, you know, made a little cocktail of um, ground-up tetrahymena cells um, with uh, what we hoped would be uh, the right um, uh, pH and buffers and concentrations. Uh, but then the, the key was really trying to understand how we were going to look for something being elongated. And we tried a variety of different things. Um, and we tried, you know, isolating a specific piece of DNA that had a little bit of telomeric sequence on it, um, did experiments for, you know, five or six months with that, getting little hints here and there. Um, but it was really, because it's an empirical science, it was just trying different things. 
Um, and it was about nine months after starting these experiments um, where, you know, every day I'd come in and make a little cocktail of the tetrahymena cells and put them in with some radioactive DNA precursors to look if those precursors would be elongating something. Um, and then uh, instead of doing a, a DNA fragment, um, I switched to trying, well, maybe a synthetic DNA oligonucleotide um, would be the thing that could be elongated. And the very first time that I did that experiment, um, uh, when I came in to develop the, uh, the, the result of the experiment, um, I saw this pattern that looked like a six-base repeating pattern of DNA. Um, and the key, in retrospect, was in switching to using that DNA oligonucleotide, not because it was synthetic, but because of the amount that you could get in, because it was so short. It was 18 nucleotides long, 18 building blocks of the, of the DNA, as opposed to something that was 1,000 or more. And because of that, there could be more molecules in the experiment. Uh, because it's so small that when you're adding a certain amount, the number of ends that were there was uh, over a 1,000-fold what we had been adding before. So it was just trying different things. Uh, and it was very clear um, as soon as we had enough of the material in the extract um, that there, there was this repeating pattern. But that's when things got interesting because it was like, wow, this is exciting. There's something that we expect to see here. But then it's like, what could be fooling us? And there was a whole another year then of trying to figure out maybe this was a known enzyme um, and um, we were just interpreting it in a certain way. And we had to then convince ourselves that um, this really was something new. Um, and this is something that I, I talk to students about um, often, is that when you have something that's new and exciting, rather than saying, oh, I want to find evidence to support my hypothesis, instead, we tried to bash down our own hypothesis and to find ways to knock it down and find out how could this possibly be wrong? Because... I would rather um, uh, disprove my own crazy idea than have somebody else disprove it. <laughs> now, now so. let, but, but we'll talk about what you had to do in the following year, but I just mm -hmm. want to go back to this aha moment. Mm -hmm. So, so and, and I, I believe I read that this was on Christmas Day mm -hmm. that you came in, uh, you, you see what has happened, mm -hmm. and, and so this was your wow moment. And then what did you do? You went home and you were so excited and you did what we all do, played Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because the pattern was something that was suggestive that, that this could really be, you know, something very exciting. Um, and then after that, it was, well, what else could be fooling us here? Mm -hmm. and, and I want to go back to this thing about the collegiality because the, the, the new item uh, that you were using that made the difference was actually something that you were able to borrow from a colleague who had been working on this? The yes, there was uh, somebody else in the lab, Eric Henderson at the time, that was working on actually the structure of these DNA oligonucleotides and, and doing nuclear magnetic resonance to try and understand. So he was just doing experiments just with this. Um, and, and so he had it in the laboratory, and I said, well, can I have some of that to try in this uh, elongation experiment? Mm -hmm. so, so once you see this lengthening process, then the, the, you're, you're then asking yourself, 
Well, what is this enzyme and where is it coming from? Is that, is that the question? Is it really a new enzyme that is just adding onto the ends of chromosomes? Mm-hmm. Nobody had ever heard of anything like that before. Typically, if you have something that makes DNA, what it does, it, is, it has something to copy, what we call a template. So a typical DNA synthesis is there's a template there, and then the uh, DNA polymerase, as we call it, the thing that makes the DNA, just copies what is there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we were wondering, maybe there's you know, some small template somewhere that we don't know about. And really, this is just a normal DNA polymerase that is making these copies. Um, and so uh, we then set out to devise a series of experiments uh, to um, disprove or to, to rule out that it was just um, a, a DNA polymerase. Uh, and that took about a year's time. So the discovery was made in December of 84, and the paper was published in December of 85. And and so what then is involved in the experiments that followed in the next year, uh, seeing what where this enzyme was coming from or what made its work possible? Um, if we could rule out that there was um, some other template that was being copied, so uh, purifying the enzyme, um, trying to um, get rid of any contaminating DNA that might be there. Uh, but what ended up really convincing us um, was uh, really the converse of the experiment that uh, Liz Blackburn and Jack Shostak had done, because what they had done was to take tetrahymena telomeres and put them into a yeast cell and see that yeast sequences were added on. So what we decided to try was to make a synthetic uh, telomere of the yeast sequence and put that into a tetrahymena extract. And sure enough, it was elongated, and the yeast sequence uh, was the initial sequence, but what was added was the tetrahymena repeat. And, um, which was the opposite of what had happened. Was the oppo- it was exactly the converse of the previous experiment. Um, and, um, and because of the, the way that the uh, sequences are, are set up, there was a slight shift in the banding pattern uh, that we saw on the gel. Uh, and that was the, the second aha moment of this uh, series of experiments that went into the first paper because then I was really convinced that it wasn't just copying something uh, that was already there and that it probably was actually adding on to the end of the chromosome. Now, when you say a shift in the banding, you mean... the, the Explain that. Uh, so the way, uh, I, as I mentioned, they have this six base periodicity that was um, the six nucleotides that are added, TTAGGG, well, the yeast sequence, it turned out, um, didn't have four Gs in the, um, mm. the initial um, template, that we were, the initial primer that we were putting in. It only has three because that's the yeast sequence. And so uh, the pattern then um, has to make four Gs. And so it adds one before then doing, going into the rest of the pattern. So everything is shifted up by one um, in that, um, with that, uh, that yeast uh, sequence, uh, which really um, fascinated us. Now, the, the next step, as I understand it, and again, this is not my background, so I'm, I'm trying to get you here to explicate, and you're really doing a great job here. So, so when does RNA, the realization mm-hmm. that RNA has something to do with this, explain So that, that was the next. Once we convinced ourselves that we really have uh, a new enzyme that is actually taking an end and adding things onto it, then the question becomes, well, where, how, where does that information, how does it know how to make T-T-G-G-G-G, T-T-G-G-G-G, because typically things do copy uh, a template. Um, and that's when we thought, well, perhaps uh, the enzyme itself has within it a little template, uh, and that perhaps could be made of RNA. Um, and so 
that was the next thing we then set out to, to test is, uh, could it be uh, that this enzyme is what we call an RNP enzyme? It has both protein and RNA uh, within it. Um, and that was uh, the next series of experiments that um, we uh, identified uh, something that, that looked like it might be an RNA template. But then we had to ask ourselves, can we really prove <laughs> that it is the RNA template? Um, and uh, uh, another series of experiments to come at it from a variety of different angles to ask, um, could we be being fooled just because you take the, uh, the enzyme and, and uh, treat with something that uh, destroys RNAs and activity goes away? Is that because there's an RNA template or is that for some other reason? Um, so it was, um, it was really uh, um, setting ourselves a series of challenges. And, and what, uh, when, when you published uh, your initial findings and then the ones that followed, mm-hmm. uh, how controversial was uh, what you were saying for the field at that time? Mm-hmm. You said you had to be your own devil's advocate. So clearly mm-hmm. you anticipated that people would be coming Typical. at you. Uh, and, and what did you anticipate? Uh, I just wanted to be sure that we were right if we were going to go out on a limb and propose something mm-hmm. like this. Um, there was an alternative model whereby um, one could use a DNA recombination to get this elongation. So there were two models that were out there that were published, and we were uh, looking for evidence uh, for one of them. Um, but uh, it's very interesting because it, it didn't end up really being too controversial. People accepted it. We had to make some changes to the, to the paper. But all along, people said, well, you know, isn't that cute? That's a nice little thing that they do off in this organism, tetrahymena. And there wasn't any uh, realization that this might have uh, some sort of a general role. Um, and, you know, now what we know about um, telomeres and telomerase, and they play a major role in human disease, and we had no concept of that back then. We were just trying to understand the fundamentals of how telomeres uh, were maintained. We didn't even know that the human telomeric sequence was the same repeated uh, kind of uh, uh, very simple telomeric repeats. Um, So I wouldn't say that it was necessarily controversial, but we published in good journals, but it wasn't taken as a huge deal. So, so your aha moment, in a way, wasn't a big aha for the community generally because it wasn't clear, well, so what? For the telomere community, the group of maybe, you know, 40 labs across the world that worked on telomeres, mm-hmm. it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the molecular biology in general, telomeres weren't really on the radar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some little problem over here with replication, but what's that got to do with, you know, people were interested in understanding how genes are transcribed and regulation and development of organisms. Um, so the fields that were really big deal fields were a little bit aside from what we were doing. So it was sort of uh, on the side. So, so in a way, we're, we're learning here something about leadership and science because uh, here we have uh, curious people building on a tradition, uh, learning stuff from their colleagues that helps inform what they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in, a, in a way, opening up a whole new field. So... Initially, you're opening up the field for the people who study these right. telomeres, but, but now we go on to say, hey, this may have something to do with uh, our understanding of cancer, cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. and other things. Talk a little about that, that next step. Um, yeah, so there had been um, uh, experiments uh, or, or proposals um, 
back in the 1970s. So this idea about um, how when you replicate the end of a chromosome, you can't replicate to the very end. Um, Liz Blackburn and I were aware of a publication that Jim Watson, the discoverer of DNA, um, had, had proposed showing that um, the, you can't replicate to the very end of the chromosome. So we were um, you know, citing his papers all along. Well, it turns out that the, around the same time, there was a Russian scientist, Alexei Alavnikov, who had independently come up with uh, the same idea, but he didn't call the ends of the chromosomes telomeres. He called them margins. And so his paper was called A Theory of Marginotomy, so it wasn't pulled up by any of our, our references. But a colleague of mine um, who I met um, uh, while I was in graduate school, uh, Cal Harley, who worked in the field of um, cellular senescence, was aware of this paper and that this, uh, this fellow Olavnikov had proposed not only do the telomere shorten, but that might play a role in um, the fact that when you take uh, primary human cells and put them into culture, they go through a certain number of divisions and then they stop dividing. And that's known as the Hayflick limit proposed by Len Hayflick in the 1960s, that, that there's a finite lifespan that normal human cells have. Um, so in talking with, with Cal Harley, um, he made me aware of this um, other literature, uh, which was going back to the, the 70s as well. And so then um, when the human telomeric sequence was identified, which wasn't until uh, 19, um, it was 1988, was the, uh, the presentation at a conference that I was at at Cold Spring Harbor, and I believe the publication was 1989, uh, then once we knew what the sequence was, so really understanding what the components are is enabling, <laughs> mm-hmm. once we understood that, then we could do an experiment uh, to ask what does happen to human chromosomes. And so I collaborated with Cal Harley, um, and, and this is what's nice about, uh, about science is that you can do um, experiments in a blinded fashion. Um, because I really like to know what, is, what is, is the truth. And if you do a blinded experiment uh, and you don't have any way of prejudging what the answer is, then you can really believe it's true. So Cal Harley had grown um, some of these human cells in culture for a number of divisions. And then uh, he prepared the DNA and he sent it to me with just numbers on the tubes. I then took that DNA um, and was able to um, look at the length of the telomeres uh, by, because I now knew the sequence of the human telomere. Um, and so I did this experiment, and some were long and some were short, and some were long and some were short, and then I called him up and said, okay, what's the key? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, those um, cells that had been dividing for more times had shorter telomeres mm-hmm. than the ones that... Um, and again, that was very satisfying because um, I couldn't have been biased in any way because I didn't know when I did the experiment um, what the result would be. So, so help us understand what the meaning, uh, the possible meanings of this mm-hmm. is for uh, coming up with, say, drugs for cancer and so on? Well, so what we were able to show is that um, the cellular senescence, that is the, uh, uh, when you take cells and they divide for a limited uh, time in culture, um, that the, the telomeres um, would, would uh, limit them from dividing uh, more times. Um, and one thought at the time, and now I think it's also um, their support for it, is that um, the, the fact that normal cells only go through a finite number of divisions uh, means that cancer cells have to have something wrong with them, and perhaps the telomeres might play a role in that. So the, the finding of the uh, telomeres that shorten uh, with normal cells in culture then led to the question of, well, what happens with cancer cells? Mm-hmm. Because the difference in a cancer cell is that um, it goes through many more rounds of divisions than it normally should. Um, and so sure enough, again, uh, with, uh, with Cal Harley and, and Sylvia Bichetti, we were able to show that um, when the uh, normal cell becomes a cancer cell, now this enzyme telomerase 
becomes active. And so telomerase is active in cancer cells and not as active in the normal cells. So that if you could figure out a way to work on that uh, process, then you might have a pathway to all kinds of discoveries. So there were um, many thoughts and many papers published that if you had a way to inhibit telomerase, you could inhibit the growth um, of cancer cells. Um, uh, now that we know a little bit more about the role of uh, telomerase in normal cells, because it turns out it's not just cancer cells, which have to divide many times. There are cells in your body uh, which have to uh, replenish other cells. One example, for instance, is uh, the blood uh, cells. Uh, within the bone marrow, there are cells that normally uh, divide every day to allow uh, new blood cells to be born because blood cells um, have a very limited lifespan. Uh, so there are normal cells in the human body which also have to have telomerase to be able to maintain uh, their telomeres. So um, the initial story, which was a cancer story, we are very interested in that still, and we've done a lot of experiments uh, to show that, in fact, uh, limiting the uh, telomere lengthening does limit the growth of the cancer cell. But if you're going to take that as a way to do some sort of therapeutics, you also now have to keep in mind uh, the role of telomerase uh, in normal cells. I see. So, so uh, how uh, it was when you saw these other pathways uh, and, and the general implication for medicine and disease mm-hmm. and so on that that you were then recognized with the Nobel Prize because it took, there was no Nobel Prize when you made the initial discovery. Right. The initial discovery was just understanding uh, the elongation of of telomeres in tetrahymena. Uh, But then by continuing to follow our curiosity, you know, I collaborated with Cal Harley on the senescence uh, side of things and then got interested in understanding the role of telomerase in cancer. We made a mouse that doesn't have any telomerase and and looked at what happens and what are the consequences of not having telomerase and how does that affect cancer by just continuing to be able to follow our curiosity, which is what's so nice about, you know, being able to work uh, in academia and, you know, the National Institutes of Health has supported my research, you know, for the last 30 years. And if I can write a grant that's um, interesting enough, then I can follow and do those things. Um, And so... um, by following those things up, the uh, consequences then for human health became clear. And the thing, as you're saying about the Nobel Prize, is that it's given for physiology or medicine. Um, And so uh, the medical implications of the telomerase and the role uh, in cancer and and in in stem cells uh, became apparent. Um, And then uh, what the the Swedish Academy looks at is then, okay, who was it that made the discovery that allowed this to be uh, clear? Uh, in an interview you gave when you won the Nobel Prize, uh, you you made a point that uh, I found very interesting, which is that it was very important for you to bring your children mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, your first press conference. Talk a little about that, because you make the point that men don't do that when they win the Nobel Prize, or they hadn't done it. Oh, I forgot that I had made that point, but but certainly I wanted my, my children to be there. Um, I wanted them to, to share the day with me. Mostly that's 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 how I felt that um, you know it was a it was a, a family uh, event and so you know when I I got the call at you know five o'clock in the morning and then after the phone call with the with the Swedish Academy I went and I woke up my children and I said you know, by the way I won the Nobel Prize and the first thing my son said was do I have to go to school today 
<laughs> and I said, no, nope, you don't have to go to school today. Now, now, what I, I, I want, the reason I wanted to pursue this is it's really about it, it's saying something about women in science mm-hmm. as, as opposed to men. And I wanted to uh, talk a little about that. So in, in this work, obviously, two women are uh, very important mm-hmm. in the work. Uh, and we're, we're grappling with the issue as a nation of how do we get more women into science. Uh, talk a little about what women bring and how t- to scientific discovery. I mean, you're still doing the same processes. Mm-hmm. It's not as if you're inventing, you know, a new science. But, but talk a little about w- why we need more women and what they bring to the table. Well, I mean, the fact that um, that there's only about 30 percent at the at the assistant professor level, 30 percent and even higher at the uh, at, at higher ranks of, of women in science um, really is just um, uh, unfortunate in terms of uh, the uh, amount of brain power that we have in the United States. If we're going to have uh, 50 percent of the of the, the people that may have creative ideas not really be able to engage um, then that certainly um, takes away a lot of the possibilities for discoveries. So I certainly don't think that women necessarily have anything unique to offer for the scientific enterprise, but they have a lot to offer. Um, and uh, a lot of times the way um, our institutions are, are structured, uh, women uh, aren't included um, in, in that process. And so uh, the science is to the detriment because of that. And, and what can we do about those structures? What in particular holds women back. Yes, I think that that's a really um, a larger issue than just uh, women in science. That really has more to do with um, our society uh, in general, because uh, in society at large, there are discussions uh, ongoing about you know women at uh, higher uh, positions in in business, um, on corporate boards, on on various uh, uh, institutions like that. And so, I don't think that science is unique uh, in this uh, in this area. Um, that um, as a society, um, we have uh, certain norms about uh, how uh, men uh, are perceived and what kinds of uh, jobs they should have and, and how women are perceived. And although um, a great amount of change, of change has occurred, for instance, since my mother's generation, um, really the, the numbers uh, haven't followed suit. For instance, when I was at Berkeley in graduate school, 50% of us were women in graduate school. But that has not tracked along. You would expect then, um, mm. if it were, as people have said, it's a pipeline issue. There aren't enough women coming into the sciences. If it were a pipeline issue, we would be at 50% at the level of full professors now. And you know we're at the 10 or so percent level. Um, so um, it's not a pipeline issue. Um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in what are the causes, but I've read a number of reports. Uh, there was a very nice report by the Association um, of um, University Women um, that uh, suggested that it's a leaky pipeline, that uh, although there are 50% women coming in, that are the different transitions from being a graduate student to being a postdoctoral fellow, being a postdoctoral fellow to an assistant professor, at each stage, more and more women decide not to go on in the pipeline. So they're coming out of the pipeline. And the question is, why, and what are the um, structures that we have in place in science, but also in general in society, um, that um, uh, more women make those choices than men make those choices. And, and you're suggesting that it may be a larger structural issue uh, that applies to the society in general. 
I, I certainly, you know, when, when I listen to national fora on these kinds of topics, uh, the issues that I hear for, you know, women in banking and, you know, women in, in business um, are very similar. And, and actually, I feel like the women in science probably have a little bit of an advantage uh, because if I were a banker today, I would have to be, you know, certain hours uh, at work. Um, and, and um, you know, I do have two children. Um, and so it's nice for me to not have to be quite so conscripted, pro- pro- proscripted in um, how many hours I'm at work. You know, if I have to go off and see my son in a play or something like that, I can do that. I have a lot more flexibility um, as an academic scientist uh, than I would uh, in other areas. Um, so, um, but yet, still, the, the same kinds of issues of... Um, of this leaky pipeline exist uh, across the country. I was very interested when uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, who was at uh, Princeton and was working with um, Hillary Clinton uh, in, the, um, uh, in the State Department, uh, came out with a very uh, provocative uh, paper in The Atlantic on um, uh, why women still can't have it all. And clearly, in, even in her, her field in, in political science, there's very, very similar issues um, that, uh, that prevent women from advancing. Uh, if we look back at your intellectual journey, you you were blessed with uh, many informal mechanisms, uh, formal in, informal environments that uh, made you the the great scientist that you became. Uh, I, I want to ask you about science education. I mm-hmm. mean, you you were blessed with a family environment in which uh, you breathed science, even if you didn't decide you wanted to be a physicist. At Santa Barbara, it was a very, it was a setting which was not formal Mm -hmm. uh, and that would draw on your strengths and and really prepare you for science. When you came here, you were lucky enough to to work with a a distinguished woman scientist, you know, and and that might have been, Sort of conducive. So, so do you have any thoughts on what your journey tells us about what we might do with regard to science education generally? Well, the the one thing that was very clear that that helped me a lot was being able to try out different things, um, because sometimes you can't just read about something and say yes, that's what I want to do. To find out what fits intellectually, sometimes you actually have to be in the situation. Uh, so that's something I definitely uh, encourage um, all young scientists or young people in, in any area is to go out and experience a lot of different things. Because when you're in the environment, you can then see what captures and what fits best with your intellectual style. And then you can know what it is that you want to pursue. So I think that having those kinds of opportunities um, in a number of different uh, settings uh, was really um, very, very helpful to me. And, and sort of looking to the future of, of the work that you do, uh, what, what, what vistas do you see in terms of questions that we have to answer along the, the path that you have helped define? Well, the, uh, this issue of uh, telomeres and, uh, and cellular senescence has really uh, become much more focused on uh, age-related disease and the role of telomeres in age-related disease. I mentioned uh, the blood cells, so uh, bone marrow uh, requiring telomerase. Um, and it turns out that there are a number of age-related diseases like immune senescence, bone marrow failure, something called pulmonary fibrosis, 
um, liver uh, fibrosis. So there are these diseases that tend to be diseases of aging uh, where the short telomeres clearly play a causal role uh, in those diseases. Um, and so um, we're even more interested now in uh, understanding the detailed mechanisms of how telomeres are maintained. And despite everything that we've done for the past 25 years, there's still a lot that we don't understand about the regulation of this process of their telomere elongation and how does it know how much to elongate. Um, and if it doesn't elongate enough, then people are at risk for these age-related diseases. So really understanding that, and we have to know more of the actual components uh, because that's an enabling uh, kind of discovery. So, so there are still um, many uh, open-ended questions about both the detailed mechanism and then how that relates to disease. Why are there, there are these particular age-related diseases that are sensitive to telomeres and, and not others. So um, I really think that there's uh, a, a huge amount still to be done in this area. Well, on that note, uh, uh, Professor Grotter, I want to thank you very much for coming uh, back to Berkeley to deliver the Hitchcock Lecture and taking the time to be on our program. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.